Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Professor Ronnie Perilous. Professor Perilous is Associate Professor of Sephardic Studies at the Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies at Yeshiva University. Professor Perilous, Perilous's writings on Sephardic history investigates the dynamics of religious transformation within the context of the crypto-Jewish experience. And as part of this very important research, Professor Perilous has authored a book titled Blood and Faith, Family and Identity in the Modern, Early Modern Spartic Atlantic. And today we will be discussing the fascinating topic of Inquisition, crypto-Jews, and the incredible religious anthology and the story behind religious mythology of Louis Carvajal the Younger. And again, Professor Perlis, thank you so much for joining us today. Most appreciated. It's really a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's good to be here and uh, happy to discuss something I've, uh, an individual that I've lived with for over 20 years okay. <laughs> in all sorts of ways. Okay. Um, so, yeah, yeah. We will. Um, Hopefully, and I'm sure get get to know that that individual. Um, okay. When we get to the individual, just very briefly, Spanish Inquisition, its timeline, mandate, and scope. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, at at YU, both as an undergrad course and as a graduate course, I teach a full semester on the Inquisition. It's something that scholars um, in ser- in a serious form in the 19th century already have been really interested in. It's this complex, large um, institution that affects, you know, affected so many aspects of society and culture, politics, um, and obviously religious life. And so it's, it's a big topic. And um, I'm happy that you start with Spanish Inquisition. Inquisition has an earlier history. It starts with, with, with the, the church itself as a way of investigating heresy. Um, and that's the important point. Inquisition is interested in Christians who are believing or acting on false beliefs, right? So the, the, the interest is not in sinners, right? Um, the Inquisition never shut down a, shut down a brothel. Um, it, 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 it's, it's concerned with people who had wrong ideas about the faith and who acted on those wrong ideas in different ways. Um, and so it, it exists, pre-existed the, what we call the Spanish Inquisition. Spanish Inquisition is unique because it develops to react to one very particular heresy. And that heresy was the heresy of recent converts to Christianity who were Jewish in origin, um, who were seen as backsliding, returning to their Judaism. Um, and, and that was the heresy of Judaizing. Um, where where a Christian embraces Judaism in addition to their Christianity, um, so that that's kind of the legal understanding, and and so there was such a perceived problem of this phenomenon amongst the newly converted Jews who became who became Christians that the the Spanish Crown, Ferdinand and Isabella, appealed to the to the Pope to establish a a unique national inquisition that would be almost like a partnership of church and state 
where the uh, where the crown would be the ones um, appointing the inquisitors. And inquisitors obviously would be would be priests, you know, priests and and monks. Um, and it was focused specifically on the issue of of um, of Judaizing. And this was established in 1478. Well, it was they were allowed in 1478, and then by 1481 it was working. And this was in what was known as, I mean, what we could call Spain. It's more or less in the geographic boundaries of modern day Spain. It's it, it's really two kingdoms, Aragon um, and and Castile, and those two kingdoms were run by Ferdinand from Aragon and Isabella from from Castile, and they came together. So that's that's the Spanish Inquisition. Um, and it came out of a much larger, another um, larger phenomenon of history in Spain, which I think a lot of people don't know about. People know about the expulsion in 1492, but one of the main things which drove the expulsion was a series of massive riots in 1391. And um, people who know something about the history of Jews in Spain know that, although it wasn't a picnic, um, nowhere you know, in pre-modern life, the Jews have it good and easy without complications. But Spain was relatively a place where Jews prospered, where Jews were integrated into their society, and where Jews did not face usual regular violence because of their Judaism. And in 1391, there is this explosion of, of violent attacks on Jews that starts in the South and spreads throughout the country. And by the end of the summer, you have thousands and thousands of Jews um, who have converted to Catholicism um, to save their lives for the most part. And so this creates this very large population of conversos, of converts, uh, which does not assimilate easily into the Spanish body politic, which has trouble um, that the what what becomes known as the old Christians, right, the ones who never converted, um, they resent them, they treat them differently, they, they enact uh, discriminatory rules against them. And notice, these aren't Jews anymore, from a Catholic perspective. These are fellow Christians who are seen with suspicion, are seen with disdain, are seen with all sorts of um, you know, negative stereotypes, often very Jewish-sounding stereotypes. But it, And the Inquisition came as a way of saying, okay, we're going to separate we're going to separate the good converts from the bad converts. We'll separate the bad, you know, the bad her heretical ones from the good ones. So that 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 comes in 1480. Notice, uh, you know, only only about 11 years later do we get to the expulsion. So there is a relationship between the two. But I, I work hard with my students for them to not, you know, to differentiate between the two because the expulsion was about Jews and the Inquisition is about former Jews. And um, from a Jewish perspective, as you know, we can look at those converts as still Jews. In fact, it was divided amongst the great Chachamim of the time and the Jews themselves. How do you look at those people, right? It, my, my second cousin who converted, do I still see him as a cousin? What about my father? What about my child? Um, so it, it's, it's more complicated than this, than a clear line between a convert and a, and a Jew. Um, there are all these inter, inter, interconnected pieces, but, um, but from the point of view of the Inquisition, they're Christians who are behaving badly, right?
Um, so that's that's a little bit. I'm I'm, I'm I don't know if I answered that part of the question. Yeah, that's but, the perfect. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, perfect. So obviously, 1492 is is a watershed year for the the Jews of Spain. It's also the year, as we all learned in elementary school, where Christopher Columbus was sent to yes. discover something. Um, Spain's political role in the conquest of the New World Americas. Just again, briefly, how did that yeah. come about? It's a, it's it's one of the great fascinating chapters of 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 world history. Um, Spain had a roughly seven hundred, more or less seven hundred year internal war. Um, not always a hot war, but a, a struggle between um, how it saw itself in vis a vis the Muslim conquerors of Spain who arrived in 711. So the Islam spreads after the death of Muhammad. By 711, you have you have um, Muslims controlling most of, of the Iberian Peninsula and the Christians, um, the Christian nobility that ran to the north led a long period of, of wars, slowly taking more and more territory from the Muslims. And this culminates in 1492. Uh, the last bastion of Muslim power in Spain, uh, Granada, is taken on, on, on the 2nd of January, 1492. And this ends this really important chapter of Spanish political life and almost opens the way for them to think about other things. And um, Columbus signs his contract with the, the crown at the palace, at the former Muslim palace of the Alhambra in Granada, um, and it's also from there that they sign the Edict of Expulsion of the Jews. So a lot of things happen around this event. Um, this event allows the king and queen to see things in new ways, to imagine the next steps, the next chapter in their reign. Um, but I think the idea of expansion, of conquest of the infidel, um, of holy war, was something that the, the, the Christian Spaniards um embraced for hundreds of years it was just a, a, a tenant of their of the way they looked at the world and so it made sense that when columbus comes back with news of all this territory that um the way he describes it is almost empty which obviously it wasn't empty there were he describes also thousands and thousands of people but he also at the same time will describe how just they're ready for the spanish to come and make them christian and have it part of it so that mentality of that, that kind of crusader, holy warrior mentality gets fused with, after Columbus, with a very strong mercantile culture that then expands into the Americas, creates this, this global empire. Um, you know, Spain in the 16th century controls um, controls large parts of Europe, controls all of South America and Central America, controls the Philippines. Uh, by 1580, it's united with Portugal, which has holdings in in India and China. I mean, you're dealing in, and 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 they're trading with Africa. So the first real, you know, you can argue it's one of the first real globalized um, um, imperial uh, societies and cultures and, and economies, and um, that's all happening, you know, after the the conquest of Granada and after the expulsion uh, of of the Jews. Um, and what that does. And yeah. 
So yeah. how does the Inquisition move to Mexico? What's it trying to achieve then? And, and who was there for them to be victims of an Inquisition? Yeah, or saved by the Inquisition. Um, remember, from the point of view of the Inquisition, they were they were they were they were doing you a tova, you know. They were they were helping you out. Um, you were lost to heresy, and they're going to save you from heresy. So um, it, it it's hard to say that without a lot of sarcasm. Uh, but but that is the way the Inquisition saw itself. So I think that's always important to like appreciate how you know people who you don't you don't revere uh, still see see what they're doing. But it, so it it I'd say in two parts. There's two parts to this. Um, one is that I, although the Inquisition is founded to deal with, Inquisition in Spain is founded to deal with um, conversos who are backsliding, who are Judaizing, who are going back to their Jewish ways after their conversion, um, it quickly expands its its net and its scope. Um, for instance, after Luther in, in 1517, with you know, basically breaks away from the church. They're all of a sudden very concerned about Lutherans, um, people who have weird ideas from a Catholic perspective about the Bible and about different religious ideas. So they start expanding who they're interested in to include other types of heresies, um, not just Judaizers. And in the New World, you have a lot of areas of concern. Um, you have thousands and thousands of, of of Christians who are arriving, Spaniards who are arriving, who are far away from home. And when you're far away from home and the norms of home, you start dabbling, you start distancing yourself, all sorts of bad behaviors. And um and and so that that opens up one area. They're really concerned for the Christianity of the Christians that are going over there and living Again, these new lives, these very different different contexts. Um, so there's that. Um, there is real fear of contagion, of of spiritual um, impurity that's going to be absorbed by Christians from the indigenous populations, um, and from the the Afri the enslaved Africans that are being brought over at this time. Uh, you know, so you you this is really the, again the birth of globalization is also also the birth of large scale traffic in human lives, forced labor. Um, that's true of the indigenous populations. It's true of the Africans, but those people had a very rich spiritual life, one that the Christians the 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 Inquisition saw as dangerous, and so they'd be concerned that that Europeans would absorb voodoo and all sorts of indigenous religious ideas. But there was another piece, and this you can see in where the Inquisition goes. There was an anxiety that of the Spaniards and Portuguese merchants, we'll get to Portuguese in a second, of those people coming to the Americas, a lot of the people coming are of Jewish background, and guess what? They're heretics, or they're secret heretics, or they're potential heretics, or they're spreading heresy. And so you see a, a bishop in, in, in Santo Domingo writing back to the crown and saying, you're letting in all these, all, these, all these heretics. And he's not talking about Protestants. He's talking about people that he perceives as Jews. Um, and, so the, and, and so they set up 
inquisitions in the main colonial centers of power and commerce, Mexico City in 1570, and soon after in Lima, Peru, uh, which you know had jurisdiction over all of South America. And when there's a lot of, um, when there's a even a greater increase, a few decades later, they set up in, in Cartagena de Indias, which is in modern-day Colombia on the Caribbean coast. Um, that's another one. So, and this had a very important Portuguese piece. The in 1492, when 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 the choice is, you can stay if you convert, or you can leave and stay Jewish. So many many people had no other options, made their decision and stayed as Catholics in Spain. Um, everyone else, we know where they go, right? They go to the places, become the great great Sephardic communities of of the of the Gola. They go to Morocco, they go to Italy, they go to Turkey, they go to Eretz Israel, um, and so on and so forth. Um, but the biggest number goes across the mountains to Portugal. But that's a short-lived haven. For Not for this podcast, for maybe for another time, uh, we can talk about the intricacies of what happened there. But the king of Portugal um, forcibly, five years later, forcibly converts all of the Jews in Portugal into, into Catholicism. And, and so all of a sudden, this group of people who gave up everything in Spain to stay Jewish are stuck in Portugal as Catholics. So we're dealing with people who are ready. This, this, is, this has been noted by other historians, Yosef Chaim Rishalmi in, in particular, um, noted this. These are ready people who are much more committed to holding on to their Judaism. But now en masse, not in trip, not in you know trickles, but in on mass, they've all become Christian. This includes, you know, the Shochet and the Moel and the you know and the Malamid and all these people, right? Are all now Jewish. Um, they're not allowed to. They're all now Christian. They're not allowed to go to synagogues. Synagogues are turned into churches, so on and so forth. They can't own Jewish books, but they live in the same neighborhoods. They're going to keep on doing the same jobs, marry the same people. Mostly because unless you're in the top, top economic class, um, no one's going to marry you, right? You're, you're not the very, very rich married nobility. But outside of that, you're going to marry within your social ed- economic class, and that's other conversos. And their business, the reason why they went to Portugal, the reason why they were welcome to Portugal, the reason why the king couldn't let them go was because they were the the agents to a great extent of a lot of the international commerce um and they that brings them to the americas in very large numbers they're going there um because there's business to be made there's opportunities to be made um and the inquisition is very aware of that and so soon um by the mid 16th century and certainly after 1580 when the crowns are united um when you when a person outside of Portugal calls someone Portuguese, what they really mean is Jewish, and what they really mean by Jewish is conversa, right? So, th- this becomes kind of a conflation of um, of the status, and so again, you see throughout South America, priests and bishops complaining all these Portuguese Portuguese are everywhere. They're bringing all their terrible practices, and they're they're um, there's even complaints about them turning the their slaves Jewish, turning the Indians Jewish, 
all these kind of rumors that circulate. Um, and and so the Inquisition is there to to limit that, to crack down on it. And and so that's, you know, really in, in a big picture view, that's that's what's going on. And that's why, um, you know, it, it's either in ma- major political centers or places like Cartagena that are this very important port, right, that for the Caribbean. So, because um, that's where these these former Jews, conversos are moving. Some of those people care a lot about their Judaism and a lot of them didn't, but they were still perceived as Jews. They were still socially living like Jews in the sense that they married each other. They did certain businesses which were associated with Jews, right? They weren't big landholders. They weren't um, officers in the army. Um, They were merchants. And that was seen as kind of a Jewish role, even though there were plenty of non-Jewish ones, right? Um, So that's that's and that gets us, I think, a little bit to the Carvajals, if you want to go there. But yes, um, that's that's a, you're, you're, I'm not sure I've been pronouncing it correctly, but okay, we'll, we'll let we'll let you pronounce it. Um, the the um, before we get to the younger, I guess we start with not called the older, Louis the Carvajal, the older. Is that is that how we? Have... Yeah, you could do it. The, the you know in Spanish it's el viejo, the the elder. You can do it okay. like that. Um, also, just. Also for our, our listeners, so the the name this is for, so it's Carvajal. J in Spanish is almost like a like a like a chet, okay. right? So it's like Carvajal. Um, yeah, so you can see that there. Yes, his uncle, his uncle um, Luis de Carvajal y de la Cueva, um, fascinating figure. Um, there's a wonderful, very well researched biography on just him on the governor. Uh, by uh, Samuel Temkin, um, that people can, can can find. I don't have it on my shelf, so I, otherwise I would show it to you. Um, and he is a person who kind of follows this interesting path in his life. He starts out his life as a typical Portuguese merchant. Um, he does a lot of overseas travel for his for his business. He has a partner who's an, a fellow Portuguese converso. Um, he marries the daughter of that fellow Portuguese converso. Uh, again, a very common uh, move in this in this diaspora. Makes money in in overseas trade, gets him to, to the Caribbean, and it's at that point that he gets himself involved in this other stage of his life, which is I see as his attempt to to erase his converso past and forge for himself a conquistador identity, an identity as a, you know, almost like a, a whitening of his identity, we would say in, I think, modern sociological parlance. He wanted to become like the old Christian upper class. And how do you do that? You don't do that through money. You do that through through through, through military service and being rewarded for that military service with land. And that's what happens to him. He's rewarded with a territory northwest, um, I'm sorry, uh, northeast Mexico, modern-day Mexico, uh, known as the New Kingdom of León. And that, people who know Mexico today would know that the city of Monterrey, a uh, very important industrial hub in, in Mexico, um, that was a city that, you know, is in the heart of that of that area. Um, and, and that is a place where he was given the governorship of, and part of the deal was that he would be able to bring 
um, a large number of family members over. And this was curious because he was of new Christian blood. New Christians or conversos were not allowed officially to come to the Americas. They all came anyways, um, but officially you weren't allowed to. But this guy who's the governor is allowed to bring his family and they get a special dispensation despite the fact that they are all of of new Christian background um, and actually a Portuguese new Christian background that then went back to Spain, which is something that wasn't uncommon. Um, so kind of prime targets for the Inquisition um, are now let in under almost like diplomatic immunity. They're brought over and um, they're there to help him uh, run this very chaotic, difficult territory. Um, it was very unsettled. It was a lot of desert land, a lot of swamps. And um, and the indigenous populations there were not settled Indians, as they would call them in those times. They were nomadic and they were not happy with all these with all these, uh, um, uh, you know, foreigners coming in and taking their territory, and they showed it by attacking uh, Spanish settlements all over. And the job of the Carvajal of, of of Carvajal, the governor, was to protect the mining areas and the settled small settlements that were there from these from the from the, what was known as the Chichimeco um, Indians, um, and to run to run the territory. But it was a very difficult job. And he needed that help from his family. So, so that brings the rest of the Carvajal family over, along with many, many other cousins and distant relatives, um, into 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 the heart of uh, of Mexico, colonial Mexico. Let's tell us a little bit about the protagonist of of a lot of the research, mm. the Carvajal, the younger. Uh, sure. And, and what yeah. was his role in, in, in the settlement of Mexico with his uncle? And and we'll get to his religious anthology. Yeah, so uh, so he was born as uh, Luis Rodriguez, actually. Very common back then to change your name. You, people had a lot of last names, and you could kind of pick and choose. And when his uncle, who had no children, um, was looking for someone to kind of rely on, um, he took his uncle's name. So we have two Luis de Carvajals, and the reason why he becomes Carvajal is because he becomes kind of the assistant to the to the uncle, and they, and they work hand in hand. They work very, very closely together um, upon, upon the arrival to Mexico. But a little bit about him. Um, Luis is part of this, this Portuguese new Christian family, lives on the Spanish side of the Portuguese border. They're cloth merchants, it seems. Um, he's lucky enough to get a very good uh, Jesuit education in Medina del Campo, which gives him the tools which he's going to use later on in life. He's going to get good training in Latin and basic initiation into theology and and um, and you know the ability to to read the Bible and philosophy and theology and things like that. Also, he becomes a very good scribe. His his penmanship is beautiful, um, and that also will help him later. Um, but he comes as a teenager. Uh, with his family to Mexico. Before that, he describes an event of initiation where his mother and sisters and some and some cousins um, take him aside and tell him the Jewish secret of the family. That actually, despite the fact that he was sent to this Jesuit Catholic school um, and the family seemed to be outwardly very pious, 
um, they actually are Jewish and they have a commitment to another law, the law of Moses, um, and that's their belief. And he describes how it wasn't a shock to him. It was it was like his eyes were opened and he saw the truth of it so clearly and he, he embraced Judaism from that point onwards. Um, and so he also has kind of a double life where during the day, so to speak, he's running around on horseback all over you know all over this territory in Mexico with his with his uncle his uncle is a devout catholic is like i said before trying everything to erase erase his jewish past and around his uncle he can't show any of his jewish commitments of any of his passion for for the law of moses as he calls it um and he keeps it to himself and he just, you know, so he has this kind of double life where on the outside he's with his uncle and he can't show any of that Judaism. And then with his brothers, with his sisters, with other members of this small, um, small community, he's able when it's safe enough to, you know, close the doors and then talk about the law of Moses, then talk about Shabbat, then talk about Yom Kippur, then talk about, um, which days you need to fast and uh, how do you pray and all those things. So um, he seeks out people in that network that could teach him things because he does, you know, he's exposed to only so much from his family. And um, and and this goes on until um, his sister oversteps the bounds and invites a fellow converso to come and join some of their ceremonies, this converso, like the uncle, wanted nothing to do with Judaism, um, either out of conviction, his belief in, in the truth of Catholicism, or out of fear that it would hurt him. Um, and he reports um, Isabel, his the older sister Isabel, and, and then the whole family gets arrested. The governor loses everything. He's stripped of his, of his honors. He's expelled or about to be expelled from, from Spain. Uh, he dies in prison, heartbroken, uh, everything lost. And Luis and his sisters and mother um, are all arrested, go through very, very difficult times in prison, appeared at an auto de fe um, and, and ask for mercy and are given mercy and, and then serve out a period of penance. And it's during that time, right, after he's given clemency, and placed uh, to work in a monastery as a way of rehabil rehabilitating him um, as a good Christian, it's there that he starts to write um, his spiritual anthology, his his writings on on Judaism in his own in his own way, um, and and that is just an amazingly interesting uh, period of of his life, and and for us as historians. Um, who want to go back to the past? It's it's the way. It's just an incredible thing to be able to um, go back to. Um, and I can talk about it as much. Absolutely, as we're going to get just just to clarify. Had yeah. he yes. and his family not asked for penance, would they have been murdered at the stake? Was was that was that the policy? If he if he, if he said Shema Yisrael instead of asking for penance, yeah, so. yeah. So so let me here. Let me share. I got a bunch of books here I wanted just to give a shout out to. So this is a, a fabulous work by um, by Miriam Bodian, professor at University of Texas, Austin, 
one of the great, great historians of early modern Jewry. Um, she has a whole chapter in Karvachal, but she talks about specifically people who, when arrested by the Inquisition, challenge the Inquisitors, right? They don't just try to get out with their skin. They they take it as an opportunity to make a last stand religiously. Um, and the way the Inquisition worked was the first time um, you can ask for, for, for mercy uh, because the Inquisition wants, wants to rehabilitate you. If after being granted mercy, um, you backslide again, you go back again, then you're executed for your crime because clearly there's no helping you. And then it's only a question of, um, do you, are you strangled before being burnt alive or being, or are you burnt alive? So if after your second arrest, you give names and you, you ask for mercy and you say, I, I, I've been wrong. I can't believe it. I can't, I've been so, I was fooled. I was whatever. Then they'll, they'll do you the mercy of, of, of killing you before burning you. Um, if you are a true martyr and go down, you know, saying Shema Israel, um, then you will be burnt alive, right? So that's that's what there are cases. There are cases where people, even a second time, are given mercy, but it's very very rare. Um, so yeah, that's that is the structure. The structure is the first time there is a sense of of compassion, and they'll they'll extend clemency on you, um, but it's important to keep in mind that clemency came with a loss of all your property and you're, you serve penance for several years um, doing all sorts of things. I mean, the penance is generally, you know, it's things like working in a hospital or an orphanage or, you know, doing acts of kindness and things like that. Um, But it means you're, you know, you've lost everything. You don't start your life again very easily. Um, Yeah. So he's obviously kept to his beliefs, whether he's able to practice them or not. And now he's he's writing. What does the is, is it correct to call it the religious anthology? Is that the right terminology? I mean, I'm, I I I, I would call it that. I, I I mean, I call it that. Let me give. Let me maybe share uh, some pictures of it so people can see what it looked like. Um. Here, one second screen share um why isn't it okay i'll just give also just give a brief rundown of different books about this this is in spanish this is the first major book on the carvajal family by alfonso toro from the 30s um and this kind of set the stage for scholarship um, Seymour Liebman uh, wrote a very important book on um, on uh, a collection of of different writings of Carvajal based on what we had from the Inquisition. Uh, this book here by Martin Cohen is still really, um, you know, excellent excellent treatment of the life of Carvajal. Um, it's written in the seventies, but still excellent um, in terms of. And we just talked about Miriam Bodian's book. Um, and, uh, this, this is my book and I have two chapters on Carvajal. I look at at two different aspects of his life. Um, and you can get that online, but more importantly is his book. Let me, let me change it because you're seeing this. Give me one second. Let me change this. Um, 
slideshow. Okay. All right. So this is the beginning of his of of his spiritual anthology. It was bound in a small leather bound book um, that he kept in his in you know in his breast pocket, sometimes inside his hat. Very very small. It fits in the palm of your hand. Um, he wrote it with this very beautiful handwriting. It's actually readable. Um, if you spend time reading 16th century manuscripts, they're not all this readable. Um, and he wrote it purposefully. Like, you know, you see the title page um, here. And I think I have that here better. Right here he has, he has this invocation. Um, at the end, he ends with a call phone. So, you know, he's really this. And it has, has several sections. Uh, the first being his spiritual autobiography, where he talks about his, his, his life and the travails in, 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 um, in colonial Mexico, the arrest and everything else. Um, he has a section meditating on the Ten Commandments. He has a section um, discussing different mitzvot. He has a section on the 13 principles of Maimonides, uh, which he managed to read uh, a discussion of in a classic Catholic book of theology that he then brought in here. Um, and he has a calendar and more things. This is me holding it um, when it was in New York for a brief period. Um, a couple of years ago, you can see him here. You can see just, you know, he wrote this with a lot of thought um, and care. Um, and he kept it with him. He shared it with his family, with other members of the group. They would read it as like inspiration. Um, and and um, the book was found, uh, you know, when he was arrested a second time. And was put as part of his um, of his trial record, which is very very extensive, because it's not only him; it's all his his family members who were on trial twice. And it was in the National Archives of Mexico uh, until 1932. And in 1932, a mysterious person came and went, um, and took the manuscript. And it's been unclear who to ever took it. Um, there's this small book by. Ilan Stavans, um, the return of Carvajal, uh, which 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 touches on some of the backstory of how the theft might have happened and and what happened later. Well, what happened was all the years I was working on this book, and I've heard of this book. Um, no one had access to the original. Um, there was a copy of the autobiography, and that was it. And it's and as my book is actually coming out in 2016. There's a new story in the Times, the New York Times, about Leonard Milberg, a very respected and important collector of, of Judaica, uh, was approached by Swan Gallery um, to buy this book. And he smelled a rat. He looked into it and uh, then contacted the FBI <laughs> uh, because this was, the, in fact, the stolen manuscript that's been gone for, you know, seven decades. And, um, and it was returned to Mexico but not before his alma mater, Princeton University, scanned it beautifully. And anyone, anyone listening to this can go on to the Princeton University website. That's why I'm staying here. And you could see it for yourself. It's beautifully done. It's very easy. No, you don't have to pay any money. It's all here for the benefit of humanity. And it's it's a beautiful, beautiful, I mean, you can really see what it's like. And um, so, um, yeah, so that's that's a little bit about 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 where, where is it now? Where is it now? 
Uh, so the actual manuscript is now housed at the University of, of the Museum of Anthropology in Mexico City. If you um, have a chance to go to Mexico City, you should definitely visit the Museum of Anthropology. It's one of the beautiful, beautiful um, uh, museums and architectural gems of the city. Um, and it is housed there, but incredibly difficult to get access to. Um, I have not been successful uh, <laughs> to date, but but because of the, the transcription, because of the digitization, um, it means that I'm I'm currently working with two colleagues on this. Um, uh, my dear friends, uh, Jesus de Prado Plumed and and Ignacio Chuecas, um, in uh, who are both based in, in in Santiago de Chile, we're working collaboratively on a new edition and um, and translation and study of the of the manuscript on its own. So that's. Uh, we're working on this, and and it's very exciting and um, a really fun project to do. Um, and and I'm learning, you know. Again, I've I've worked on Carvajal um, since my graduate years, and uh, which is a long time ago. And it it's an amazing thing to have this because so many things get opened up from it, right? You, you for see, example, what, 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 for what example, is, yes, yeah. Um, he has a calendar. A Hebrew calendar. I mean, it's not, it's, it's all in, he didn't know Hebrew. Um, but in the calendar, you have the names in Hebrew of the holidays. You have the names of the Jewish months, right? So Cheshvan, Shvat, right? Um, he has one to 10 transliterated. So he has Ehad till, till Tisha um, transliterated. Um, and that's just like, an, you know, there's no, I, I'd have to re. I, I and my colleagues have to go through all of the testimony again, but I don't remember anyone ever asking him questions about the calendar. But we know how important a calendar is to keep to be a Jew, um, and this calendar gives you the dates for not only the big holidays, but Shivas or um, you know things like that, Tisha um, B'Av, and holidays like that. That how does a guy living in Mexico, far away from any centers of Judaism? How does he know that? Um, so it gets us thinking and realizing that actually things are less um, sealed off as you think. We know uh, from other cases of Jews from Italy, for instance, that come to Mexico outwardly living like Catholics, connect with conversos, share ideas with them. And so clearly you see that kind of global exchange of ideas um, and books and idea and, 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 and knowledge uh, being played out there. So, yeah. So, so what 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 works and manuscripts did he have access to? In other words, if he wrote on thirteen principles of Maimonides, if he wrote on the Ten Commandments, so that's the Bible. But he had access to this from his previous education, or somehow, as you said, through the circle of conversos, there were certain books, farum, that were available. Yeah. So this is one of the great areas of of. Understanding other crypto Jews also, in other words, how did they know what they knew? Um, you know, and Professor Rishami wrote a very important article about this many, many years ago. Um, but a lot has been built on that. Professor Bodian's book deals with, with these, these issues. Um, also, Professor Yosef Kaplan, live and be well uh, in Yerushalayim, uh, um, spent a lot of time trying to trace. What is what? How? What sort of Jewish knowledge that people have before they came to the 
places like Amsterdam where they could return to Judaism fully, right? Um, so with Carvajal, he's in a really interesting test case because here we have a guy who is decently educated. He can read Latin, which already is a high level and opens up all these books. Um, but he didn't wasn't a priest. He wasn't trained at a high level. Um, so it really comes from his own autodidactic hunger. Um, so it's a mixture of, like you mentioned, Jews who are you know now living like Catholics in Mexico, which there were some of them, um, some members of his circle that knew more. So there was a doctor on his boat that he's very close to, Dr. Morales, and he talks about him. Um, oral knowledge that his parents told him, you know, about holidays and things like that. But he does a few things. He gets his hands on a Bible and using the Bible, which was not um, accessible to most people um, in the, by the, you know, by after the council of Trent, uh, lay people weren't supposed to own Bibles, even in Latin. Um, So he gets his hands on a Bible and that opens up a whole world of his ability to interpret and to make sense of the Bible for his own purposes. Um, and and so that's one major component. The other one is um, popular Christian works that um, contain just a lot of um, these new ideas about spirituality, about prayer, about meditation, um, about ethics that were uncannily very infused with biblical ideas. Um, and these works were written in vernacular. They were popular. They were, they were accessible, uh, written by people with names like, uh, you know, uh, Fray Luis de Granada or, or Luis de Leon and, and others. And so he got a lot from there. Those books, books with titles like, you know, Meditations on the Symbol of the Faith, or um, the signs of the cross, things, I mean, the very, very Catholic books. But because if you read them properly, you can glean a lot of content, which then you can make Jewish. And lastly, when he's at, his, his penance was at a monastery that had a very, very uh, good library. And one of his jobs there was as the, um, the secretary, the private secretary and scribe of the rector. And so the rector would say, oh, you know, can you copy out this chapter for me? There were no fax, there were no Xerox machines, right? So uh, no PDFs. So can you copy this chapter out for me? So he'd give him the keys to the library. So, so he says, they gave me the keys to the library. They don't do that with everyone else. I got, and, and so he would go there wherever he wanted and he would take off the shelf books which were um, of biblical interpretation, which actually were written often as anti-rabbinic books, books trying to show that the Jews are wrong, the Christians are right, and how am I going to show you that the Jews are wrong? I'm going to quote a long passage of Maimonides. I'm going to quote a long passage of of an Agada. agada. Uh, I'm going to quote a big, and I'll I'll argue, I'll show how Rashi read it wrong. But guess what? They're going to quote the entire piece. And he creates an anthology for himself of those works and shares them with other Jews. And it's an amazing work of, of, of what I call spiritual audacity. I mean, really to, um, you know, to mine and poach these Jewish elements out of these Catholic texts and turn it into this very personal 
Judaism. This isn't his Judaism did not look like the Judaism of a Jew in, in Ferrara or in Istanbul or in Krakow. It was very unique to him based on his scenario, based on his, his environment. But I mean, I, I read him as someone who really just did a lot with very little, you know? Um, yeah. If, if we didn't know who he was and where he was coming from and somebody put this anthology in front of us and we started reading about faith and religion and belief and Maimonides and the Bible and I got a, what would, what would, how would we peg this? Like we would say this is the work of a believer, uh, someone who's knows something, but that something's wrong. How, how would you peg it? It's so great. It's a really good question. Um, and, and that's what I do with my students. Um, you know, we, we read passages and I say, you know, what do you see here? What do you notice? What's strange? Uh, what's out of place? What, you know, and um, it's, you clearly see a person who's a deep, deep belief in God, a deep belief in, in Hashkacha, um, in his day-to-day lives. Um, you know, I, I see the text as, his, his autobiography in particular as him taking his family's experiences and almost making it a biblical story. You know, he, he takes, he uses his Hebrew name, his Jewish name of, of Joseph. So you hear these passages and, and the echo passages about, about, right. Uh, Yosef at Sadiq and, 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 and the Chumash, um, you know, the way all these different, you know, that he found, you know, that he found favor in the eyes, right? Things like that, that things were done for him that not, weren't done for anybody else, um, that he rose from the prison to, you know, not to the palace, but to, to better places, that he was a dreamer and he was interpreter of dreams and these things. So so you get this, but it's very sui generis, very eclectic. Um, he has all sorts of terms that sound very Catholic. Um he uses the term santo, saint, um, you know, so Saint Moses, Saint Esther, things like that. Um, when he talks about Brit Milah, he talks about the sacrament. It's very, very Catholic, not very Jewish. Uh, right? It's an ot, it's not, right? it's, it's not exactly. So he's, he absorbs from his surroundings, but he's also very, very um, vigilant and passionate about rejecting the basic features of Catholicism, right? So any aspects of, of idolatry um, um, and also the idea that you don't need the mitzvot, that you, you just need faith. He's, he's very much about, no, no, you actually have to do what's, what it says in the, in, in, in the Bible. You need to follow those mitzvot. If you don't, you're not going to be saved. Um, and so, but he then uses that term saved. It's a very Catholic way of thinking of things. So it's, 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 it, you know, I mean, I, I see this as I personally would argue and I do argue and that's how I see it. Uh, this is part of the early modern Jewish world. Um, it's it's one very important aspect that has all these interconnections with people living in normative communities. Um, but it's creative and it's its own it's its own thing. Um, as, a, as a final um, question. Yeah. While he wrote this and was doing penance in the monastery, was he still practicing in secret? Or was that impossible at that point? 
he had a lot of chutzpah. Um, he he did a lot of crazy things. Um, he he was in fact, it's kind of like people say with prison today. You know, you come out of prison doesn't reform most people. Sadly, it it really creates greater you know better criminals. Um, and he comes out he comes out like that. He comes out more passionate, more committed, um, and he figures out how to take advantage of the system. He travels around. You know, he knows that when he's traveling, it's easier to do things. Um, so, for instance, at some point, he's allowed to gather alms um, for his family, like, you know, um, to get to get charity for his family. Um, and traveling around, getting alms, um, you know, in a very with with a with a letter from the from the bishop, um, he meets up with conversos. They spend Pesach together. He he sleeps in a monastery, but in the morning makes sure to go to a spring that was close by to to go to immerse himself in the mikvah. Right, this is the sort of life he's leading. He avoids certain foods. He avoids traveling on Shabbat. He you know, um, it's kind of um, he's able to um, actually almost increase. And like I said, while he's in the monastery, that's when he's learning all these new things about Judaism. Um, that's when he discovers the passage about about the thirteen principles of, of of Maimonides. That's when he he starts reading these sections of of Agadot and different things. So, um, yeah, and the end of his life, the end of his life. So again, similar situation. Um, someone in the family reaches out to someone that they thought would be friendly, and wasn't friendly, gets arrested. And then everyone gets arrested, and then they are all uh, burnt at the stake. Um, there is a discrepancy. We know that the mother and sisters um, were were strangled before being burnt. Um, there is a machloket about about Luis because um, it seems from the trial that he was going to go as a martyr, and there was there is a report by a priest who claims that. He convinced him to to embrace the cross at the last moment, and that he witnessed it. So that's there in the public record, but you know it's unclear what actually happened. I mean, throughout the trial, um, he maintains his Judaism, right? And the second time, so you know we can't know exactly, but um, but I guess you can, you know. So that that that's what happens. There's one, um, his brothers. Um, he has one brother who wasn't arrested, who was a priest, uh, was a monk, and it was a becomes a Dominican monk in Mexico. Two brothers escaped before the first trial to Italy, and then off probably to somewhere in the Ottoman Empire. And we don't have much of a paper trail on them, but there is reports that they were living like Jews in in Italy um, around the time of his arrest. Um, and one of his baby sisters was not arrested. And um, she survived. And there's a whole afterlife of the Carvajals that is in um, in art and in also and in literature, um, but also among uh, people in the in the American Southwest and New Mexico and Arizona that claim lineage back to the Carvajal family and uh, trace their Jewish roots that way. So it's a which is something that I don't know a lot about. But it's a fascinating um, modern postscript, I think. Um, this, this has been absolutely—that's the word—absolutely fascinating. Um, 
Uh, I'm sure our listeners and the viewers um, have now have an appetite to to learn more. And one way to learn more is obviously with uh, Professor Perilous's book, Love and Faith, Family and Identity in the Early Modern Spartac Atlantic. And of course, um, as the, the new work comes out on the yes. spiritual anthology, I urge all our viewers and listeners will send a link to the Princeton site. And again, uh, Professor, thank you so much um, for this um, entertaining and enlightening um, presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for your great questions. Um, they were really, uh, they kind of kept me focused. And uh, for your listeners, um, uh, my graduate courses are online and okay. uh, you can audit for a small fee. And, uh, okay. You know, you're welcome to come to Revel, um, you know, yu.edu slash Revel and, and learn deep, you know, go deeper in all of this stuff because it's, you know, and, and I don't get tired of teaching it. It's strange. I, I find something new all the time. So my students, I think, help me with that, um, their questions and, and, and insights. So, um, well, thank you very much. Appreciate okay. it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. All right. Okay.